James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It fascinates me that James singles out an activity that would never attract public notice or earn fame or name recognition for anyone. And he says that, that is pure and undefiled religion. What he describes is the polar opposite of Phariseeism. Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Matthew 6, 5, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Verse 16, they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. The Pharisees had lots of faults. Their doctrine was bad. They they were mean-spirited and lots of stuff. But Jesus' harshest criticism for them always focused on their pathological need for human applause. They had an insatiable craving for human applause, for the esteem of others. Everything they did was aimed at gaining the favor and admiration of men rather than the approval of God and the magnification of God's glory. And you know what? The world today is rife with people like that who are on a relentless quest for human acclaim. And I wish I could tell you that the church is different, but let's face it, we still struggle in our flesh with the remnants of sin, and this is one tendency that not only trips us up as individuals, I would say this is the besetting sin of the evangelical movement. And in fact, I have said that repeatedly. American evangelicals are far too concerned with what the world thinks of us. And we're not nearly as devoted as we should be to the pursuit of God's glory and His good pleasure. And here's the problem. The Western evangelical obsession with winning the world's admiration is incompatible with God's strategy for winning the lost. Every decade or so, trendy evangelicals adopt some new idea about how we might get the world to be more impressed with the church. And usually it involves a toned-down abridgment of the gospel. Sometimes the result is a whole different message. It might be a manifesto about self-esteem or a a promise of earthly prosperity or some benign-sounding moralistic message or, or a popular political agenda, preferably something that sounds positive and appealing. Most evangelicals seem to think that evangelism would be much more effective if we could just get people to like us or admire us you know, especially before we have to get into issues like sin and righteousness and judgment. And frankly, lots of evangelicals are so determined to sound positive and likable that they never actually bring those themes up at all. The average Christian today wants people to feel comfortable rather than convicted when they hear our message. And so the evangelical movement has gone through a century or more of missional strategies that always involve adopting some aspect of the world's agenda. In other words, we keep hearing that the church needs to be more like the world. And we're told that if we don't, we're going to lose a generation or alienate a subculture or otherwise incur the displeasure of some people group whose beliefs or objectives 
are impossible to reconcile with the gospel. And the rhetoric that accompanies these strategies always suggests that it's the church that needs to change, not the sinner. And therefore, all such strategies undermine the gospel call for repentance. In fact, that whole way of thinking is inherently hostile to the very idea of calling sinners to repentance. And that's a major reason the word repentance has all but disappeared from the message the world hears from the church. A hundred years ago, modernists were saying that if the church doesn't reframe Christianity as a system of moral philosophy and abandon all of our emphasis on the supernatural, then Christianity will never survive the, the rational scientific industrial age, they said. Men who had attained positions of respectable leadership in the church were claiming that it's sheer folly to expect modern minds to accept miracles or divine inspiration or biblical inerrancy or even the reality of Christ's resurrection. Spurgeon for a time was practically a lone voice steadfastly opposing that trend and history proved him right. Then for the first half of the 20th century we had liberalism really an extension of modernism, but the liberals were more focused on the notion that certain parts of Scripture are, are just hard to reconcile with the love of God, they said. How could a loving God command the extermination of the Amalekites? And for that matter, is, is it really true that God is love, or, or does he punish people in hell? Because they said both things can't be true. And so the liberals took a selective approach to Scripture, simply rejecting everything they deemed not, sufficiency, not, not sufficiently broad-minded and beneficent. Liberalism killed most of the mainline Protestant denominations, and by the middle of the 20th century, it ought to have been clear that the mainline denominations were dying, and while other mostly independent churches continued to thrive, if they held on to their belief that all Scripture is true. But even among the most respected, articulate, knowledgeable evangelicals, there were scholars and church leaders who craved recognition or acceptance or validation of some kind from the world. Because in the aftermath of the Scopes trial, evangelical Christianity had acquired a reputation for being intellectually backward and narrow-minded. And, and in those days, fundamentalism and evangelicalism were basically interchangeable terms. So sophisticated evangelicals wanted to shed the stigma of fundamentalism and earn respect, especially from the academic world, and they argued that the way to do this was to abandon militancy and engage themselves in a, a more friendly kind of theological dialogue with the liberals and the neo-orthodox scholars, and they called themselves neo-evangelicals. And meanwhile, there was, at the opposite end of the spectrum, a noisy gaggle of hyper-militant fundamentalists with a fiendish love for conflict, and they had dangerously unbridled tongues and a, a pharisaical wish to be seen and admired as the, the great guardians of religious devotion, and they turned their fiercest polemical weapons on the neo-evangelicals, and that led to a rift that we still haven't quite got past today. Virtually every church or educational institution that was 
led by those original neo-evangelicals is now as liberal as the liberalism those neo-evangelicals said they hoped to win by being more friendly. And meanwhile, the fundamentalist movement destroyed itself with infighting. And make no mistake, fundamentalists were seeking human applause in a different way, but they were just as guilty of man-pleasing as the liberals and the neo-evangelicals. Practically everything that was wrong with big movement fundamentalism was rooted in a pragmatic wish to impress men rather than God. You could see it in the way so many of them boasted about numbers and vied with one another to be able to claim the largest Sunday school or the most far-reaching bus ministry. They were seeking the favor or the applause of men, although they had a totally different strategy from their neo-evangelical adversaries. I was converted out of a liberal church background as a teenager in 1971, and in the decades I have been a believer, I have watched the evangelical movement go through fad after fad, and most of them are variations on the same theme. The moral majority tried to gain followers and influence by stressing conservative politics. In the seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven era, a new generation of church leaders insisted, no, the way to connect with the world is to impress them with entertainment. You know, let's appeal to the people who like rock concerts and amusement parks. And so they tried to make the message as fun and, and non-threatening as possible because they're catering to people who don't fear God and, and frankly don't want to believe that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then starting about 20 years ago, we had the emerging church movement insisting that if the church doesn't adopt postmodernism's distaste for authoritative and dogmatic truth claims, then the rest of the, the world is going to reject Christianity entirely. And in the end, a lot of, and the end came quickly, thankfully, a lot of emergent leaders themselves were the ones who actually abandoned the faith. And still, it seems to me, the mainstream of the evangelical movement is obsessed with the idea of winning the admiration of the world, escaping the disapproval of those who hate Christ, and getting in step with whatever this world's celebrities happen to be obsessed with at any given moment. And frankly, at the moment, lots of church leaders are, are still looking for ways to absorb and incorporate, or at least accommodate, postmodern values. I'm convinced that is what is behind most of the evangelical rhetoric about social justice. Although people who have grown up in the evangelical subculture cringe every time I say this, I am more convinced than ever that this preoccupation with popularity and fashion is the very essence of sinful worldliness to crave applause from men more than you want to please and obey God is clear proof that your affections are too earthbound. It's the worst kind of worldliness. Worldliness, you know, is one of those sins that sophisticated evangelical leaders are not supposed to mention ever. But worldliness has been a plague on the evangelical movement for a century or longer. James, the author of this epistle, is as disapproving of worldliness as I am. Look at our text again, James 1.27. One of the characteristics of religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world, unstained by the world. 
Now, just how sinful is the desire to cater to worldly tastes and to seek the world's acceptance and approval. James regards it as a form of spiritual adultery. James 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I actually preached on that text last year at G3. So I'll just quote it without commenting on it here any further. But let me stress something that I've, I've already said tonight. Man-pleasing, anything you do that is motivated primarily by a desire for human applause, man-pleasing is a, a grievous expression of the very sin that caused the fall in the first place. It's a desire to get glory that belongs to God alone, and it's wicked. Even if you try to cloak it in religious garb, the way the Pharisees did, strapping a broad phylactery on it doesn't change the reality of what it is. And at the moment, one of the most stylish ways of courting the applause of others is known as virtue signaling. This was, I think, first of all, a worldly phenomenon, but it is now also prevalent in the evangelical community. And it is, I think, the most common way fashionable evangelicals are trying to let the world know that we're on board with the talking points of the social justice warriors. They borrow from groups like Black Lives Matter or the Southern Poverty Law Center, their hashtags, their slogans, their rhetoric, their outrage, and of course, as Vody was saying, their terminology. Let me explain and illustrate what I mean. And by the way, this epidemic of virtue signaling in the world is is so widespread and, and so obvious that there's even a Wikipedia page devoted to it. Look it up, but let me give you a a better definition than you would get from Wikipedia. Don't try to write this down because it's long. You can get it from the recording later maybe, but it's simple. Just listen to it. You'll get the idea. Here's the definition. Virtue signaling is the practice of trying to put one's own moral superiority on display by saying or doing something that has no real practical benefit other than to announce agreement with the most stylish opinion of whatever happens to be trending at the moment. People who do it like to pretend that they're being courageous. They often congratulate one another on their courage, but it is anything but courageous for a Christian to watch what the world thinks in order to try to come across as hip or sophisticated. In order to be effective at virtue signaling, you have to be thoroughly conversant with the dominant themes of popular culture. You've got to know what the most fashionable celebrities believe, and you have to agree with it, or at least say you agree with it. You need to be fully in accord with ideological orthodoxy, according to the secular academy. And of course, you must observe all of the prevailing standards of political correctness. Other than that, There's really nothing complex about virtue signaling. Parading your postmodern moral rectitude to an appreciative audience can be done by something as simple as adding a hashtag to your tweets. And that's what's called hashtag activism. Posting hashtags expressing either approval or outrage about something that you have no intention of making any real effort to address. 
it's a gross form of blatant hypocrisy, and it's destructive to real, rational discourse. It's also counterproductive, but it is wildly popular today, and it is increasingly common among evangelicals. I first began to notice this phenomenon, hashtag activism, that it was a thing, you know, back in 2012 or so, when you remember this, many of you, overnight, it seemed, everyone was up in arms about a marauding outlaw in Africa named Joseph Kony. You remember him? He's the Ugandan rebel and religious cult leader who kidnaps children and turns them into soldiers and sex slaves, and he is truly an evil, evil individual. He blends Christian themes and narratives with evil doctrines of his own making, and he's built his own little cult. And in early 2012, his name dominated Twitter hashtags. The hashtags were Stop Coney and Coney 2012, and it was everywhere you looked. The outraged denizens of social media, and this includes both secular people and Christians alike, were demanding by their hashtags that Coney be apprehended dead or alive before the end of that year. But, but you, you, if I didn't remind you of it, had, would you have thought of that at all today? Because zeal for that cause was remarkably short-lived. It was no different from every other trending topic online. Joseph Coney is still at large today seven years later, and it turned out that the, the film that made this whole issue go viral was part of a bizarre fundraising scam, and the whole episode ultimately trivialized something that frankly is a very serious ev evil. That's what hashtag evangelism does. But if you spend any time online and just watch the proliferation of hashtags, you are familiar with the phenomenon I'm describing. The hashtags tell you what's trending and, and what is the socially acceptable opinion, and it's also the laziest, cheesiest, no-cost way to signal your virtue. But at the end of the day, all forms of virtue signaling are just armchair activism. It's a hypocritical substitute for genuine charity. It's moral posturing. It's a quick and dirty method of doing the very thing Jesus condemned the Pharisees for. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. Virtue signaling is the cyber world version of praying long, loud prayers on the street corner. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like the unenlightened bigots in the political center or even the Neanderthals on their right. I only celebrate causes that are politically correct. I post the most popular hashtags three times daily, and I lobby for animal rights. It's like sounding a trumpet before you if you were, like, as if you were doing arm, alms, but not really giving anything to the needy. This is not a strategy Christians shouldn't adopt as a means of getting our message out, and yet I fear that's exactly what's happening. Lots of evangelicals seem to think virtue signaling is a valid substitute for the actual proclamation of gospel truth. Or at the very least, they think that unless we first strap on the broad phylactery of the social justice agenda, we can't proclaim the gospel to the world. And let me cite some examples. I'm not going to name names. I, I am not on a quest to embarrass anyone personally, and, and that especially goes for evangelical leaders who over the years have taught me and ministered to me 
respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I'm going to be as specific as possible while trying really hard not to bend the limits of courtesy. But frankly, I see a lot of esteemed evangelical thought leaders falling into this trap. It caught me by surprise a few years ago in the wake of the Ferguson, Missouri incident when a few evangelical leaders began using the Black Lives Matter hashtag. I expressed concern about it at the time, and I actually didn't say much more about it until last year when the two most conservative and best-known evangelical organizations both hosted conferences urging us to put social justice at the head of the gospel agenda. These were organizations founded less than 15 years ago in order to defend the core principles of gospel truth. But these, those conferences last year seemed to unleash a flood of hashtag activism and virtue signaling among their writers and their conference speakers and their constituents. One of the key evangelical leaders sent out a tweet that said this, quote, Last evening, a magnificent African-American brother called me woke. I felt honored, grateful. Might Jesus be making an impact on me? Of course, some won't like this, but go ahead and at me all you want. I don't care. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back, unquote. And another well-known author and conference speaker wrote this, quote, on the day following the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., I have a personal confession to make. The gospel that I have held so dear has been, in reality, a truncated and incomplete gospel, unquote. And that tweet was linked to an article he had written loaded with allegations about racial and economic injustice, calling for equity of outcome in both society and the church, pleading with evangelicals to make these issues a dominant theme in our message to each other and to the world. And in short, he was saying that the Martin Luther King anniversary had finally opened his eyes to a newer and fuller understanding of the gospel and that he hoped the rest of us would have a similar epiphany. Get woke. But the entire article had not one single reference to Scripture. I'm not talking about exact quotes. He didn't even allude to Scripture in it. And I could cite numerous examples like those from well-known evangelicals. At one of those large conferences last year, a popular pastor, a white guy, said in his conference message that he was interviewing prospective staff people, and he told the placement company he was working with that he would hire an African-American 7 over an Anglo 8. But he wouldn't hire an African-American 6 because, in his words, quote, the African-American six will look and feel to our people like the kind of tokenism that I'm preaching against, unquote. So I guess he's okay with tokenism as long as it doesn't look and feel like tokenism. Now, is it cynical of me to regard that kind of rhetoric as virtue signaling, to say it's merely moral posturing? I don't think so. It's, it's frankly hard to come to any other conclusion because the aftermath of two major evangelical conferences on social justice has not brought about greater racial harmony or even more evangelical unity. The actual result 
was a steep increase in online outrage and angry recriminations coming from those, the very people who fancy themselves champions of social justice. And that, in turn, produced a veritable tsunami of virtue signaling. Let me be clear, though. I, I am not saying or even implying that everyone who speaks approvingly of social justice or the social justice movement has been guilty of virtue signaling. I am observing a fact that I don't think can be honestly denied. The recent flood of rhetoric about social justice in evangelical circles has unleashed a tidal wave of virtue signaling among those who are young, restless, and woker than thou. And make no mistake, there are lots of them. When the emerging church movement was at the peak of its popularity, maybe 12, 15 years ago, some of the leading voices in that movement had a lot to say about social justice. This isn't, this isn't an, obviously not a new idea, but most of them, most of those emergent social justicians are, were simultaneously attacking gospel principles like substitutionary atonement and justification by faith and the exclusivity of Christ. And when that trend began to wane, around 2011 or so, I wrote a blog post saying though that the emergent movement seemed to be dying, and, and although it was dying as a movement, some of the ideas that had been thrown around were like postmodern dandelion seeds that in a few years, I predicted, would crop up and produce just a harvest of weeds among evangelicals. And you could see that happening as early as 2015 when one of the keynotes at the Urbana conference referred to the Black Lives Matter organization as, this was her words, quote, a, mission, a movement on a mission in the truth of God, unquote. And Urbana's official Twitter feed picked up the cause and took it. The group who led worship there that year wore Black Lives Matter t-shirts. By 2018, as I said, the two best-known, most well-attended conferences sponsored by conservative evangelicals gave their platforms to speakers who were saying essentially the same thing. And it's ironic and frustrating because starting at least in the early 1980s, some of us were desperately trying to sound an alarm while while large movement evangelicalism was more or less sleepwalking through about three decades of seeker-sensitive stuff with zero interest in doctrinal orthodoxy, and now we're being told by a younger generation of large movement evangelical leaders that political orthodoxy is supposed to be at the top of our agenda. And you cannot credibly deny that politics and political correctness is at the heart of the current evangelical hobby horse. Millennial evangelicals did not suddenly discover some profound biblical principle that their spiritual ancestors had never seen before. This whole issue, including the rhetoric, the terminology, and most of the proposed solutions, all of it was borrowed directly from popular culture. And although social justicians chafe with this fact is pointed out, a lot of it was absorbed into pop culture from Marxism and critical race theory, where it was blended then with heavy doses of postmodern values, reworded with postmodern rhetoric 
This is not a movement that grew from purely biblical roots. And it's all tangled up with ideas about what constitutes virtue that really aren't biblical either. And if I had more time, I'd go into detail on that. But postmodern virtues, for the most part, are not virtuous. It's simply a matter of fact that the version of social justice that has been advocated by many of the leading evangelical social justicians is a highly politicized and distinctly left-leaning definition of justice. Some of the panelists at one of the big conferences last year even admitted that they feel more amiable towards Martin Luther King's Socinianism and James Cone's black liberation theology than they feel about Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and their biblical evangelicalism. And frankly, even the most conservative voices, the most respectable men who have affirmed aspects of the social justice movement don't seem to be making any serious attempt to differentiate between biblical principles of justice and what social justice means to the average member of Black Lives Matter. Social justice, as Vody said, is an entirely different idea from biblical justice. Social justice is a severely truncated and badly twisted notion of legal equity, compartmentalized justice, dealing mainly with economics and social privilege and, and civil rights. And in recent years, a plethora of politically correct causes are have been and are being added to the menu, including global warming, animal rights, abortion rights, LGBTQ rights, gender fluidity, war, immigration, socialism, and a cornucopia of similar ideas that have been borrowed from the political left. The social justician's answer to practically all of those social ills is a plea for government intervention or a shift in public policy rather than a heightened sense of personal responsibility. Authentic biblical justice would include a host of issues that you rarely hear about from evangelical activists, and sometimes they denigrate. The guys who are pushing this issue most aggressively aren't going to mention these things, but it is not really justice at all if you neglect the moral content of God's law, including the biblical standards of sexual purity, there's also the issue of condign punishment for evildoers. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall his be shed, by man shall his blood be shed. Or Romans 13, 4, if you do evil, be afraid, for that government official does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And Paul wrote that when Nero was in power, and he knew and well understood that sometimes government officials do this unjustly. But he's saying God established it for a cause, and you have to be subject to those who are in authority. And the duty and privilege of work is another matter of biblical justice that somehow always gets left out of the social justice agenda. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That's justice according to Scripture. Evangelicals who let secular ideas about political correctness determine how they signal their own virtue are headed 
for moral and doctrinal catastrophe because there are already voices within the evangelical movement claiming that if we insist on the biblical standard as written, we're going to lose our ability to reach anyone in the LGBTQ community. There are already advocacy groups that self-identify as evangelical claiming that there's really no reason a gay person or transsexual shouldn't be able to pursue that lifestyle while retaining church membership in good standing. The Newbigin House of Studies in San Francisco is a, at least a quasi-evangelical, an ostensibly evangelical organization that exists to train missional church leaders. And one of their senior fellows writes a blog for Christian readers. Here's what this blogger says, quote, Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus choosing to hang with prostitutes, tax collectors, people ostracized and viewed as sinful by the religious establishment. The blogger writes, quote, if Jesus were around today, I'm 99% sure he would be kicking it with LGBTQ folks, unquote. That's an evangelical source, supposedly. And that kind of virtue signaling is not advancing the gospel. It's poisoning the current generation of evangelical thought leaders. This is not virtue. It's shot through with narcissism, worldliness, and uh, unbiblical cynicism that tends to demean genuine Christian virtue. If we think we have to watch what's trending in the world and adjust our message every half decade just to stay in step with the world, we are not being diligent enough to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Again, that's James 1.27. And James actually goes on in the very next verse, though it's interrupted by a chapter break, James 2 verse 1 condemns partiality. Candidly, if evangelical thought leaders simply studied carefully what the Bible says about impartiality, it would be a helpful corrective to a whole lot of the social justice rhetoric. It might put a stop to the, a lot of the accusatory virtue signaling and, and public shame-mongering that we've been hearing from evangelical social justicians over the past year or two, because the Bible says repeatedly that we're not to favor either the poor or the rich. It's wrong, of course, we all know this, to show favoritism to those who enjoy some kind of social privilege. To show them special favoritism is not a righteous thing. But it is likewise wrong and equally sinful to balance the scales of justice in favor of the poor and disadvantaged. That is not a biblical standard of justice at all. And it certainly isn't an idea that needs to be appended to the gospel message. Listen to Jesus' own summary of the gospel message from Luke 24, verses 46 through 47. This is what we need to proclaim to a lost world, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. He didn't commission us to scold people for the sins of their ancestors or to demean whole people groups for the idiosyncrasies and sins of whatever culture they happen to be born into. He doesn't permit us to differentiate between people based on the color of their skin or their economic status or whatever. Our Lord commanded us to go into all the world with a message that is the only real answer to humanity's sin. And we're to proclaim it without partiality, 
without trying to tone it down, without trying to punch it up, without trying to adjust it to include something that might make it sound hip and stylish. The gospel has never sounded stylish. It's not supposed to. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. God deliberately chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, including that virtue-signaling evangelical who's so desperate to reconcile the world's wisdom with God's. Because after all, the foolishness of God is wiser than men.